وَلِلَّهِ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ يَغْفِرُ لِمَن يَشَاءُ وَيُعَذِّبُ مَن يَشَاءُ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَّحِيمًا سَيَقُولُ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ إِذَا انْتَلَقْتُمْ إِلَى مَغَانِمَ لِتَأْخُذُوهَا ذَرُونَا نَتَّبِعْكُمْ يريدون أن يبدلوا كلام الله قل لن تتبعونا كذلكم قال الله من قبل فسيقولون بل تحسدوننا بل كانوا لا يفقهون إلا قليلا And to Allah belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth. He forgives whom he wills and punishes whom he wills, and ever is Allah forgiving and merciful. Those who remain behind will say when you set out towards the spoils of war to take it, let us follow you. They wish to change the words of Allah. Say, never will you follow us. Thus did Allah say before. So they will say, no, you are envious of us. But in fact, they are not understanding except a little. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season six of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6-6, The Saudis and Arabia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. With Winston Churchill's and T.E. Lawrence's support, Prince Abdullah is made the temporary ruler of Transjordan. Arab nationalists in Syria are demanding independence from France. Winston Churchill reinterprets the Balfour Declaration, but it does nothing to stop the steady stream of Jewish immigrants from Europe. Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, the ruler of Najd, prepares to invade the Hejaz, but the British make him back down. Having defeated the Rashidis, the Hashemites are the last significant rival to Saudi dominance in Arabia. And with that, let's take a look at what's happening in Transjordan and Palestine. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, much more to come. For more information, visit islamichistoryx.com. Transjordan and Palestine 
Prince Abdullah ibn Hussein, son of Sharif Hussein and brother of King Faisal, had come to Transjordan under suspicious circumstances. His sudden arrival in early 1921 led the British to believe he was planning an invasion of French-controlled Syria. After all, this was right after his brother Faisal had been exiled by the French. This situation in Transjordan and the chaos in Iraq led to the Cairo Conference in the spring of 1921. One of the solutions the British came up with during the Cairo Conference was to redefine the Balfour Declaration and allow Prince Abdullah to rule Transjordan for six months. Winston Churchill figured this would keep Abdullah busy while they figured out what to do with Transjordan. However, by October 1921, Abdullah was beginning to enjoy the privileges of power and wanted his temporary rule to become permanent. In the back of his mind, he hoped to patch things up with the French and perhaps even convince them to give him Syria. The British were making it easy for Prince Abdullah to remain in Transjordan. They sent John Philby, the famous explorer, to be his advisor. Meanwhile, Colonel F.G. Peake organized and trained the Arab Legion, an elite military unit loyal to Abdullah. British advisors reformed the tax system, improved land management, and paid off local tribes to support Prince Abdullah. The Zionists, who were slowly colonizing Palestine to the west, were certainly not happy about this situation. As mentioned earlier, most people at the time considered Transjordan an extension of Palestine. When the Balfour Declaration promised British support in creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine, the Zionists took that to mean Transjordan as well. In fact, Transjordan made up 75% of the land they hoped would be a future Jewish state. Hence, they were rather dismayed to see an Arab prince ruling Transjordan. The Zionists were not pleased with Winston Churchill's revising the terms of the Balfour Declaration. He even went so far as to redraft the declaration to specifically exclude Transjordan from Palestine. This redefinition prohibited the Zionists from settling in any lands east of the River Jordan. The Making of Transjordan Prince Abdullah may not have been the best choice to rule Transjordan, but he was the only choice. In 1922, Saudi warriors invaded Transjordan, coming within an hour's ride of Amman. British warplanes and armored vehicles eventually forced them to retreat. Since the Saudis continued to raid Transjordan, the British continued to maintain a military presence there, which was exactly what the British were hoping to avoid when they appointed Abdullah ruler of Transjordan. But they could not get rid of him because there was no one else to take his place. The British found themselves protecting their Hashemite client from their Saudi client. As time went on, it just made sense to make Abdullah permanent ruler of Transjordan. On May 15, 1923, Abdullah and the British signed the Anglo-Jordanian Treaty. This agreement severed Transjordan from Palestine by recognizing Abdullah as its emir. 
Ignoring the angry protests from the Zionist faction, the British High Commissioner of Palestine began preparing the Emirate of Transjordan for independence. Once that time came, Abdullah would be recognized as head of state. But this would take some time. Prince Abdullah was not ready to run the country on his own just yet. Frustrated with Abdullah's incompetence, the British had to take over more and more of Transjordan's administration just to prevent the new nation from collapsing. Over the next two years, the British made a deal with the Saudis to prevent cross-border raids, defined the border between Transjordan and the Saudi domain, and incorporated the Aqaba and Ma'an districts. Finally, in 1928, the British Parliament ratified the Anglo-Jordanian Treaty. The new nation also had a new constitution, which created a legislative assembly and a cabinet that served at the pleasure of Amir Abdullah. In February 1929, Transjordan held its first parliamentary elections and its first legislative council took office. When its borders with Syria and Iraq were finalized three years later, the shape of the modern nation of Jordan was in place. Problems in Syria and Lebanon In 1922, France finally got what it wanted when the League of Nations granted a separate mandate over Lebanon. This separated predominantly Christian Lebanon from predominantly Muslim Syria. That same year, the modern nation of Syria began to take shape when the French announced the Syrian Federation. France had initially divided Syria into various administrative districts. But now, the Syrian Federation combined these various smaller districts into four large administrative units. The state of Damascus, the state of Aleppo, the state of Jabal Druze, and the Alawite state. The Alawite state was a restless region and the French were not exactly sure what to do with it. They created an independent Alawite state in 1920. Then, they incorporated it into the Syrian Federation in 1922. Two years later, they made the Alawite state autonomous again, this time known as the Independent Government of Latakia. And then in 1930, it was once again reincorporated into Syria. Throughout all of these changes, the Alawites continuously rebelled against the French. The Great Revolt The Alawites were not the only group in Syria giving France a headache. The Druze of the state of Jabal Druze, located in southern Syria along the Jordanian border, had many demands. They demanded a Druze governor, they demanded to be allowed to keep their weapons, and they demanded French soldiers leave Jabal Druze. When the French did not respond favorably to these demands, the Druze revolted in July 1925. Even though the Druze were a minority, Syrian nationalists throughout the country sympathized with their cause. Before long, the rebellion spread throughout all of Syria. Known as the Great Revolt, the Syrians eventually forced the French out of Damascus. The French responded by shelling Damascus with artillery and bombing it with warplanes. The French eventually retook Damascus only to be ran out again the following year. 
The revolt was finally put down in 1927, nearly two years after it started. Just like the British in Iraq, the French now had to do some soul-searching. As they began to pick up the pieces, France decided to lighten up on their policies and adopt a more conciliatory tone with the Syrian people. Some local Arab politicians also decided to work with the French rather than against them. These Syrian nationalists still wanted to unite Syria and end the mandate. But they knew it was going to take some time and were hoping the French might be willing to grant some concessions and autonomy. A little after the Great Revolt ended, a new Syrian political party was created called the National Bloc. The following year, in 1928, elections were held and nationalists won most of the seats in Parliament. These nationalists drafted a new constitution and called for an end to the mandate. The French High Commissioner of Syria, realizing that things had gone too far, moved quickly to snuff out this small breath of independence. In February 1929, France suspended the newly elected Syrian parliament and abolished its constitution. Then France imposed a new constitution on Syria that remained in effect until 1950. French policy in Lebanon While Syria was more or less divided along ethnic lines, Lebanon was more or less divided along religious lines. The Ottoman Empire had named this district Lebanon after the Lebanon mountain range that separated it from Syria. The word Lebanon comes from an ancient word meaning white. Interestingly, the word for yogurt in Arabic is al-Laban. Perhaps this word is derived from the same ancient origins. When the French took over after the war, they kept the Ottoman name, eventually calling it Greater Lebanon. In 1926, France approved a new constitution for Lebanon, giving each religious group proportional representation in Parliament. The Christian Maronites were 29%, Sunni Muslims were 23%, Shiite Muslims were 20%, Greek Orthodox Christians were 10%, Catholics were 6%, and the Druze were 7%. While this may seem like a rational policy, it would lead to disaster in the coming decades. Arab Nationalism and Palestine The same nationalism that drove the revolts in Syria was also rising up in Palestine. The Arabic-speaking people of Palestine did not like the way things were going. In 1922, the League of Nations officially approved Britain's mandate over Palestine. Whether the Palestinians liked it or not, their fate now lay with the British. Unfortunately for the Palestinians, the British were intent on fulfilling the promise of the Balfour Declaration. And the League of Nations mandate appeared to support this promise when it recognized the ancient Jewish connection to Palestine. This ran in stark contrast to the findings of the King Crane Commission of 1919. We first discussed the King Crane Commission back in Episode 2. 
This was an American research initiative appointed by President Woodrow Wilson to determine how the peoples in the former Ottoman territories felt about their future. Initially, the King Crane Commission was pro-Zionist and were in favor of Jewish settlement in Palestine. However, after speaking with and interviewing the local Palestinians whose ancestors had lived there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they had a change of heart. In the report the commission submitted, they recommended against Zionist settlement in Palestine. They agreed with the idea of a home for the Jewish people, just not in Palestine. The commission predicted that there was no way to carry out the Zionist plan except by force, and doing so would only increase anti-Jewish feelings in Palestine and elsewhere. And unlike the League of Nations, the King Crane Commission did not consider the 2,000-year-old biblical links as justification to displace thousands of Palestinians. The commission also acknowledged that Muslims would be the best caretakers for the various holy places in Palestine. The report stated that Jews did not consider Christian or Muslim holy places as sacred, and Christians did not consider Muslim holy places as sacred. However, Muslims generally considered the holy places of all three religions as sacred and were best suited to care for them all equally. Needless to say, Great Britain ignored the findings of the King Crane Commission. Despite the failure of most of their other plans in the Middle East, they were certain things would work out in Palestine. Meanwhile, the Arabs felt cheated, especially those that supported the Allies during the war. Many of them had joined with the Allies on the promise of an Arab kingdom independent of the Ottomans or any other foreign power. Instead, all they got were a bunch of mandates which for all intents and purposes was just another form of colonialism. And unlike the Ottomans, these imperial masters were not even Muslim. Of course, Britain tried to salvage this betrayal by creating a bunch of small, weak Arab kingdoms. Sharif Hussein got the kingdom of Hejaz, while his sons Faisal and Abdullah got Iraq and Transjordan, respectively. But this was not the deal the Arabs had signed up for. And this crazy plan to turn Palestine, which had been predominantly Muslim and Arab for over a thousand years, into a Jewish homeland was just too much. All of these broken promises led to a rise in Arab nationalism across the Middle East. Arab nationalism had helped the Allies defeat the Ottomans, but the Arabs had not benefited much from that victory. Perhaps it was time to approach things a little differently. Some Arabs attempted to rebrand Arab nationalism as a revival of Islam. Among these were Muhammad Abduh, the rector of Al-Azhar University, and his student Rashid Rida. But this was not very effective as the Arabic language and not the Islamic religion became the focal point of Arab nationalism. This Arab nationalism in Palestine crossed religious lines as Muslim and Christian Arabs began working together for the same objectives. 
An example of this was the Muslim Christian Association, which initially called for Arab independence and a Palestinian union with Syria. Some Palestinian Arab nationalists took an uncompromising stance. They insisted on an immediate end to the British mandate and to all Zionist settlements. Among these were Musa Qasim al-Husseini, the former mayor of Jerusalem and head of the executive committee of the Palestine Arab Congress. And from the same clan was Amin al-Husseini. He became the Grand Mufti of Palestine in 1921 and by the 1930s was the most powerful Muslim leader in Palestine. These Palestinian Arab nationalists and others would form the backbone of the Palestinian resistance to the Zionist plans. The Saudis versus the Hashemites When we last discussed Abdulaziz ibn Saud, he had just defeated the Rashidis, one of his arch-rivals. This victory gave the Saudi ruler control over much of the Najd, or Central Arabia. Six years before that, Abdulaziz had beaten the Ottomans to take Eastern Arabia. But now, Abdulaziz wanted the Hejaz and Transjordan, both of which were ruled by members of the Hashemite clan. Sharif Hussein was the so-called King of Hejaz, while his son Abdullah ruled over Transjordan. Abdulaziz attempted an invasion of Transjordan in 1922, but British warplanes and advanced weapons forced the Saudis to retreat. Abdulaziz eventually signed a treaty agreeing to stay on his side of the border. But the old man in Mecca was a different story. Ever since Sharif Hussein refused to recognize the Balfour Declaration, his relationship with the British had gone south. He was also angry about the many broken promises the British had made to him. There were also rumors that the old man was suffering from dementia and did not have his full faculties. He had even tried to declare himself the caliph after Kamal Ataturk abolished the Ottoman caliphate. Considering Sharif Hussein's collaboration with non-Muslims contributed to the demise of the Ottoman Empire, most Muslims either ignored or ridiculed this declaration. Kamal Ataturk's rise to power coincided with Lloyd George's fall from grace. The British Prime Minister had stepped down after nearly starting another war with the Turks. The new British government wanted to curtail Lloyd George's wild adventures and his even wilder spending. In March 1924, the British Parliament voted to stop paying subsidies to both Abdulaziz and Sharif Hussein. Those subsidies and the threat of British retaliation were the only thing keeping Abdulaziz from invading the Hejaz. In fact, the British secretly wanted him to take the Hejaz and remove Sharif Hussein, who was becoming an embarrassment. On August 24, 1924, Abdul Aziz ordered 3,000 of his Ikhwan soldiers based in Turaba to attack Ta'if, about 83 miles away. Dementia or not, Sharif Hussein was not a fool. He expected a Saudi invasion when the British announced an end to their subsidies. Over the years, he had amassed a stockpile of modern weapons and had built a much larger force than anything Abdulaziz could throw at him. Unfortunately for Sharif Hussein, 
he also entrusted the defense of Taif to his eldest son, Ali. Prince Ali was not exactly the warrior type. Despite his larger numbers and better weapons, he barely put up a fight when the Ikhwan attacked. Then he cowardly retreated in the middle of the night, leaving the city of Taif defenseless. With the Hashemite forces gone, the Ikhwan sacked the city, killing nearly 300 people and destroying several grave sites. This included the grave of Ibn Abbas, one of the greatest Sahaba and cousin of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Ta'if is a legendary city in Islamic history and one of the first places Prophet Muhammad tried to preach in. When news of the brutality of the Ikhwan invasion got out, the Muslim world reacted with horror. Sensitive to the feelings of its Muslim subjects, Britain pressured Abdulaziz to exercise more control over his Ikhwan warriors. Abdulaziz, realizing now that his actions had a global impact, agreed to refrain from unnecessary violence. Everyone knew Mecca was next on his list. Thousands of Muslims fled Mecca, fearing the brutality of the Ikhwan. Thinking this was a personal feud with Abdulaziz, the leading figures of Jeddah demanded Sharif Hussein step down. Perhaps Abdulaziz would be more willing to negotiate with his son, Ali. Sharif Hussein reluctantly abdicated the throne in early 1924, and Ali ibn Hussein became the new king of the Hejaz. But that did not stop the Saudis. With the city nearly empty, Ibn Luay, Sharif Hussein's former governor of Turaba, marched into the holiest city in Islam on October 16, 1924, taking it without shedding a drop of blood. Abdulaziz arrived in Mecca a few months later. Meanwhile, King Ali had moved his capital to Jeddah and waited for Abdulaziz's next move. Would he go for Medina, the second holiest city in Islam? Or would he go for Jeddah, which was much closer to Mecca? As it turned out, Abdulaziz went for Medina. His Ikhwan warriors put the city under siege in February 1925. Knowing the entire world was watching him, Abdulaziz was concerned about what might happen if Medina fell. His Ikhwan warriors, brave soldiers they may be, were often uncontrollable and always unpredictable. Medina is a special city. Even though it ranks slightly lower than Mecca, it occupies a special place in the hearts of all Muslims. Medina is the city that welcomed the Prophet and became the first Muslim capital. It is difficult to describe the reverence Muslims have for Medina as it is slightly different from the reverence we have for Mecca. There are also hundreds, if not thousands, of famous Muslim heroes, scholars, and Sahaba buried in Medina. The Prophet's wife Aisha is buried there. His two closest companions, Abu Bakr and Omar, are both buried there. The Prophet himself is buried there. Medina is also held high in esteem by the Shiites of the world. Nearly every Shiite imam was born in Medina and several are buried there. If the Ikhwan were unleashed in Medina with all those tombs and all those Shiite relics, there was no telling what might happen. 
Abdul Aziz did not want to be known as the man who desecrated the Prophet's tomb. Abdul Aziz had to conquer Medina, but he could not let it fall to the Ikhwan. Unfortunately, he could not come to Medina himself as he was meeting with various Muslim delegations from around the world. So he secretly sent supplies and food into Medina, allowing the city to hold out against his own forces. Because of this, Medina withstood the Ikhwan siege for nearly a year. Medina did not capitulate until December 1925 when Abdul Aziz's son, Muhammad ibn Abdul Aziz, negotiated a surrender. Then he led his troops into the city where minimal damage was done. And now, all that was left of the Hashemite kingdom of Hijaz was Jeddah. This was all that remained of Sharif Hussein's reward for betraying the Ottoman Caliphate. But no one was sticking around to defend it. Most of King Ali's ministers had already fled for Egypt or the Sudan. King Ali himself fled to Baghdad to be under the protection of his brother Faisal. Jeddah fell to the Saudis on December 23, 1925. And now, Abdul Aziz also controlled Western Arabia. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia Abdul Aziz ibn Saud controlled more territory in Arabia than anyone else. Not even the British or the French with their mandates could equal Saudi territory. He also held the two most important cities in Islam, Mecca and Medina, making Abdul Aziz one of the most important and powerful Muslims in the world. In November 1925, just a few weeks before Medina capitulated, a group of Indian Muslims came to the Hejaz to meet with Abdul Aziz. These Indian Muslims were from the Khilafat movement. This organization began soon after the Ottoman Empire was defeated in World War I. Knowing the fate of the Islamic Caliphate was in danger, the Khilafat movement hoped to convince Great Britain to prop up the institution. When the delegates from the Khilafat movement met with Abdul Aziz, they discussed their ideas for a global pan-Islamic committee called Mu'tamadun Alam al-Islami or the World Muslim Congress. They hoped this organization would one day administer the Hejaz democratically. Therefore, the delegates advised Abdul Aziz, he should consider himself the guardian of the two holy cities rather than their ruler. Abdul Aziz was initially open to the idea. He assured the Indian delegates that he would protect the Hejaz. However, the elite families of Mecca were not so agreeable. They had no desire to see their historical duties of managing the Hajj usurped by a bunch of foreigners. Abdul Aziz agreed with the elites and allowed them to form a Majlis Ashura, or Consultative Committee, to further discuss the issue. In June 1926, the first Mu'tamar, or Conference of the Islamic World, was held in Mecca. Representatives from India, Russia, Palestine, Syria, Egypt, Sudan, and Arabia were present. Interestingly, there were no representatives from either Turkey or Persia. 
The most important thing to come out of this conference was the decision to create an international organization to promote solidarity and cooperation in the global Muslim community. Mu'tamadun Alam al-Islami still exists today. Its global headquarters are in Karachi, Pakistan, but it has offices across the globe. Mu'tamadun Alam al-Islami also has consultative status at the United Nations and observer status at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. King Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud Abdul Aziz declared himself King of the Najd in 1926. In October of that year, Sayyid Muhammad ibn Ali, the ruler of Asir, submitted to King Abdul Aziz as a vassal. Asir is the southern region of Arabia, just north of Yemen. Sayyid Muhammad ibn Ali wanted the Saudis to protect him from constant Yemeni raids. This new relationship exemplifies King Abdul Aziz's new stature. Just a few years earlier, he allowed Great Britain to handle his foreign affairs. Now, completely independent, he was handling the foreign affairs of others. The exiled teenager from Kuwait had come a long way. The following year, Abdul Aziz also named himself King of the Hejaz. In May 1927, he signed a treaty with the British formally recognizing his independence. The Ikhwan With Asir now part of his dominion, there was nowhere left for the Saudis to expand. King Abdul Aziz had already struck deals with the British and Hashemite rulers of Iraq and Transjordan, defining their borders to the northeast and northwest, respectively. To the east was Kuwait, which was still a British protectorate, and the Persian Gulf. To the west was the Red Sea. South of Asir was Yemen, which was also a British protectorate. With no more lands to conquer, it was time for Abdul Aziz to settle into the role of statesman. Unfortunately, his Ikhwan warriors were not satisfied with this new reality. The Ikhwan were raised with the ideology of continuous warfare against both Muslims and non-Muslims until the whole world followed true Islam. They were not content to return to their settlements, raise families, and peacefully live out the rest of their lives. The Ikhwan believed jihad, armed struggle in the path of Allah, was all there was to life, and death in the path of Allah led to eternal paradise. They were starting to have second thoughts about their leader, King Abdul Aziz. They did not like the recent changes he had made and how he tried to restrain their pillaging. They did not like that he allowed the elites of Mecca to run the city nearly autonomously. Those same elites had allowed all sorts of bid'ah or religious innovations to go on in the holy city. They did not like that he stopped them from destroying all those blasphemous graves and tombs in Medina. They did not like that he was negotiating and making deals with the British who worshipped Jesus, ate pork, and drank alcohol. They did not like that he allowed his sons to travel outside of the kingdoms, visiting deviant Muslim nations like Egypt and Kuwait. Some of them even went to England, the home of the pork-eating, Jesus-worshipping British. 
Now in his early 50s with declining eyesight, the Ikhwan believed their leader had gone soft from the riches and glory their swords had brought him. If King Abdul Aziz would not continue the jihad against the Jesus worshippers and their deviant Muslim puppets, then the Ikhwan would do it themselves. In September 1927, a group of Ikhwan crossed the border into Iraq and attacked a British oil drilling station, killing all of its workers. Furious, the British government demanded Abdulaziz do something about the Ikhwan. In the meantime, the British rebuilt the drilling station and fortified it with warplanes, soldiers, and armored vehicles. The Ikhwan continued to raid, often attacking helpless villages or caravans, most of whom lived under Saudi protection. With the Ikhwan becoming an international embarrassment, King Abdulaziz gave them an ultimatum. Settle down or face his wrath. In their hearts of hearts, the Ikhwan were still Bedouins who lived by raiding towns and other Bedouins. When Abdul Aziz settled them into towns and unleashed them on his enemies, he redirected this natural tendency of theirs, but he did not remove it. The Ikhwan ignored King Abdulaziz's warnings and continued to raid and plunder across northwest Arabia. They believed he had lost his warrior spirit and was too soft to attack them. And even if he did, they were confident Allah would bring them victory. In March 1929, King Abdulaziz led an armored unit to confront a group of Ikhwan at Sabila, about 180 miles north of Riyadh. He had armored cars, machine guns, and a promise of aerial support from the British. Abdul Aziz hoped this show of force would encourage the Ikhwan to back down and negotiate. The Ikhwan agreed to negotiate, but they did not back down. When it became clear nothing was going to change, Abdul Aziz ordered the attack. The Ikhwan fought using traditional tactics and weapons. They had rifles and guns, but not much else. They rode into battle against Abdul Aziz on horses and camels. The Ikhwan were massacred at Sabila and it was not even close. Abdul Aziz's victory was so devastating, most of the other Ikhwan bands in Arabia laid down their arms and agreed to submit. But this state of affairs did not last long. Within a few months, the arguments, bad blood, and disagreements brought the Ikhwan face-to-face -face with Abdul Aziz again. Throughout 1929, Saudi forces clashed with the Ikhwan. The Saudis, with their modern weapons and British support, won every single time. By the end of the year, most of the Ikhwan had been destroyed. On January 28, 1930, Faisal ad-Dawish, chief of the Mutair clan and the leader of the Ikhwan, surrendered to Abdul Aziz, who had him imprisoned for the rest of his life. The final threat to Saudi hegemony was removed. In September 1932, King Abdul Aziz ibn Saud unified the kingdom of Najd and the kingdom of the Hijaz into a single state, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. In the next episode, we'll discuss the rising tensions in Palestine and how another world war affected the Middle East.
know, being a father is pretty fun. And it's, it can be kind of easy, too. When my kids were little, most of my kids are teenagers now, but when my kids were little, I used to take them and throw them across the room onto my bed. And I only have one child I can still do that with. I have an eight-year-old. I can still pick her up and throw her across the room. And, you know, she screams and yells and everything. But once she lands in the bed, nice and safe, she's, you know, doubled over with doubled over with laughter. That's the thing about being a father. We do these sort of crazy things. Now, alhamdulillah, we have mothers to hold things down while we fathers are doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And I can't imagine how this world would be without mothers. It must be, I, I know I'm, I'm married to a mother. I am the son of a mother. I am the brother of several mothers. I'm not a father of a mother yet, but it's going to happen eventually, inshallah. But, you know, mothers have it difficult. I, I know that. And being a mom is not easy. I can imagine how much more difficult it is to be a Muslim mom. Alhamdulillah, Islam does, does uh, enforce or recommend, I should say, Islam does recommend and encourage treating the mothers well. But I know it's still a difficult job being a mother, um, a Muslim mother, and even more so being a, a Muslim mother in the West, particularly the United States. So, alhamdulillah, there are uh, lots of resources out there now for Muslim mothers. And one of these resources is Mamying While Muslim podcast. Mamming While Muslim drops every Thursday to support and connect with Muslim American moms and the specific issues that they face with their kids every day. If this is something that you're interested in, if you are a, a Muslim mom or even if just a mom or even just interested in what Muslim moms have to go through, feel free to DM them on Instagram. Just look for Mamming While Muslim podcast. You can find out more about Mamming While Muslim podcast by going to mommyingwhilemuslim.com. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Siege of Acre. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. In October 1187, Pope Gregory VIII issues Audita Tremendi, launching the Third Crusade. Frederick Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire leads a large army towards Utremer. Salahuddin makes several key mistakes, particularly freeing King Guy of Lusignan. Unable to enter Tyre, Guy gathers a small following and sets up camp outside Acre. Salahuddin underestimates Guy, allowing the disgraced king to gain a toehold at Acre. And with that, let's discuss Salahuddin's mishandling of the Siege of Acre. The Siege of Acre By the time Salahuddin arrived at Acre in September 1189, Guy of Lusignan had already taken the high ground. He set up camp at a nearby hill called Mount Toron, giving him excellent vision over the field before him and access to water from the Bainlus River. Despite Guy's advantageous positioning, he was still outnumbered. Salahuddin should have been able to launch an attack on Guy's forces, inflicting heavy damage and perhaps even destroying them. But Salahuddin chose to wait until all of his forces arrived. But, as more Muslims arrived, so did more Christians. So long as King Guy had access to the sea, he could continue to receive reinforcements and supplies. Salahuddin simply did not move fast enough to cut off this access, and the Crusaders were benefiting from it. A few days after Guy set up camp on Mount Turon, several Italian ships arrived, bringing along hundreds of sailors and their families. A week later, 50 Danish ships arrived at Acre, bringing another 12,000 soldiers. These new arrivals were responding to the Pope's declaration calling for a new crusade. Even Conrad of Montferrat, who refused to let Guy enter Tyre a few weeks earlier, decided to lend a hand. 